0: nothing is more important than relationships that's what we've been talking about for the last several weeks Uh, if you were here with us the first sunday in september uh, we talked about that passage out of out of matthew that talks that we call the great commandment where someone asked jesus what is the most important of all the commandments and there's a whole there was a lot i'm not just the 10 but they were talking about all the old testament law as well and 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 he said this he said he replied this way love the lord your god with all of your heart soul and mind and strength And then he added another one, and love your neighbor as yourself. And it may have confused him at first, but if he began to think about it, what he was talking about is relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with other people. And so Jesus himself says to us that nothing is more important than relationship. It's the greatest commandment. It's the greatest thing, the most important one. Now, over the last several weeks, what we've done to flesh that out we begin to talk about this whole thing in the context of what the New Testament talks about as we call the one another verses. In the New Testament, as you read through the whole New Testament and the Gospels and also in the writings uh, and the epistles, and those are the writings like of Paul, like Philippians and Ephesians and those, you'll find out that there's about 58 different verses that we call the one another verses of the Bible. Uh, The one another's are talking about our relationship to one another. How we're to respond to one another. And so we began the process of talking about a few, just a few of these. We're not going over all 58. Uh, but just a few of these this month and next month, we'll be looking at that as well. And today, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, the one that calls, says to love one another, which is probably where we needed to start to love one another. And about 15 of the one another verses refer to that. And then last week, we talked about the whole thing of what it means to belong to one another and how we're all part of the body of Christ. And if you missed that, you can listen to that on a podcast. Today we're going to talk about another one. And this is one that the first word in the, in the, uh, in the verse, and the one another, uh, sometimes it's misinterpreted or misunderstood. But it's something that Jesus talked about and Paul talked about throughout Scripture. And it says this in Ephesians 5.21, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Today what we're going to talk about is what does it mean to submit to one another? What does it mean to have humility? Uh, because the reality is, the reality is, is, that seemed to be a big deal with Jesus' disciples. If you look at the New Testament, and you look at the Gospels, and you look at, at Jesus' encounter with his disciples, constantly they were asking the question, or they seemed to have it on their minds, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Who is sitting next to Jesus? Who is, who is the most important? And, and of course, all of them thought they were. And so today we're going to talk about that, and that subject of greatness seemed to be a favorite topic, not only among Jesus' disciples, but it's something that Jesus faced every day. And so he was empowering, in a real sense it's interesting because he was empowering these men, these 12 uh, of his closest followers, to change the world. But they always seemed to be lagging about five steps behind in their understanding of what it meant to do that and how they did that. And, and I often wondered if Jesus must have thought to himself, these guys are going to be the ones that are changing the world? Not sure it's going to work that way. But luckily, Jesus knows more about it than, than we do. And so they began the, the whole movement of Christianity. Uh, now, today, uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But one time, Jesus also, one of the things he did is he was with his disciples and he deals with this thing of, of humility, and he dealt with it multiple times. But one time he brings a, a child into their midst, and he sits the child down in front of him, and he, and he points to the child, and he says he says this to them. He says, whoever humbles themselves or himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They probably thought about the greatest part of the thing, forget about the humble part. And, uh, and, and they were all excited about that. Yeah, okay, I want to be the greatest. But Jesus says, let's redefine greatness in a real sense. It's about being humble. So Jesus challenges them to learn about true greatness uh, from a child. And Jesus talks to his disciples who are basically demanding to get their own way. Now, if you read all of scripture, and you don't have to read everything, but if you read just the New Testament part of scripture, the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of Paul, you cannot help but understand there's a strong connection between our desire to be great and our decision to humbly serve. There's a strong connection in Scripture. Every time we see this desire to be great, it's taught about about, uh, humility and and submitting to one another is there in the midst of that. Matter of fact, uh, Jesus one time um, was talking to his disciples, and in Mark 10, it says this. Jesus says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And so if we all have this desire for greatness, and he understood that, but Jesus taught us to translate our desires for greatness into actions of humility. And we're going to talk about that today. Because it can be difficult to see the connection, and many people never strive to understand or even to implement this aspect of humility in their lives that will make them uh, truly great according to what Jesus says, Uh, the humility that would make them, that would have a measurable impact on the world. So, we want to look at that today. Um, One time, though, another time Jesus was talking to him, he kind of gives what I call the, uh, uh, I don't know what you call the daily greatness quiz. If you want to take the daily greatness quiz, there's two questions you need to ask yourself. And you can only check one as the right answer, okay? You only get two questions. And the two questions is this. Will I exalt myself or will I humble myself? Check one. And how he said this was in Matthew 23, 12. He says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He said, you have a choice. Exalt yourself, you will be humbled. Humble yourself, and you will be exalted. And so these guys probably perked up when they heard that. So I don't know if they took the test every day, but they uh, probably failed it like we do so often as well. So today we want to talk about that. The issue of humility and how, how it affects our relationships. And what I want to say is this. The truth is this. And listen carefully. We cannot, we cannot have good and growing relationships if we're not humble, can't happen. It's absolutely impossible. Why? Because selfishness destroys relationships. Every counselor that counsels couples that are going through crisis will tell you, and I've done this many, many times, will tell you that generally it's it's one person or the other person being selfish. Usually both that destroys relationships. Selfishness destroys relationships, but humility develops relationships. <laughs> And we need a foundation of humility at our core to put aside selfishness that will erode any type of relationship. So Jesus taught this, basically, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, it's interesting that when he says this, so often people think, well, God does the humbling. You know, like, God makes you humble, right? It's not what it says in Scripture. It says, whoever humbles himself. It's a choice we make. It's not something that God does to us. He gives us options. God is, we're not robots. God gives us options. So humbling ourselves is a choice we make. If, if It is God's choice how he will respond to our humility. And he says, God chooses to exalt those who humble himself. So today we're going to talk about this. And I, I couldn't figure out, I was going to title this, this, this sermon something else. I, was going to, I thought about all kinds of titles. thought, you know, The Secret to Humility. Or, uh, you know, How I Discovered Humility Myself. That's supposed to be a joke. But anyway, (laughs) the reality is, the reality is this, folks. If you think you're humble, somebody asked me earlier, first service, why don't you give the humility test today? All of those who think they're humble, raise your hand. I don't see any hands. Well, that's good because if you think you're humble, you're probably not. Because humility is something once you discover, once you have it, you don't know you have it. Because it's not something you seek after. But so how do you do it? How do how can we how can you be great at being humble? Well the good news is I don't know the answer to that, but scripture does. And the reality is, is I could I could teach a bunch of different scriptures today would deal with the same thing, so I just chose one because there's so much scripture in so little time. And so what I want to focus on is just one passage of Scripture today. It's out of one of Paul's writings to the Philippian church, Philippians chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles in whatever format they are, electronic, uh, paper, or you've memorized all the Scripture, you just go ahead and pop it up right now in your mind, and uh, we'll go from there, okay? Okay, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through, uh, basically 1 through 8, but we'll also read a couple other verses as well. Philippians 2, and this is why I chose this. Philippians 2 is probably one of the most profound passages that answers the question of what humility looks like, what it means to, to uh, 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 you know, encourage one another, what it means to uh, submit ourselves to one another. Now, Paul begins this section of his address with these words in Philippians 2.1. Therefore, last week we talked about a verse that started off with therefore. What did that say that it meant? When you see the words therefore, what do you ask? y'all didn't, y'all didn't, you all you all you can not believe I couldn't remember that one thing I talked about last week. If you see the words, therefore, you ask, what is it there for? Okay. It's so hard. And, and the thing is, and the reason is why, when you see therefore, what is it doing? It's referring to what came previous. He said a bunch of stuff in Philippians chapter one. So we're not going to read Philippians chapter one right now, but I challenge you this week to underst- go back and read Philippians chapter one. So you can understand In the context, and it doesn't really matter quite as much today, the context of why he says, therefore, this is what you do. I'll give you a little hint. He talked about the whole thing of being in Christ and how there's some things about relationships that we have to be focusing on. And then he says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and and when you read that, you're going like, is he saying, is he implying, is it speculative that he's trying to imply that there may not be any encouragement? and being connected with Christ? Is that what he's saying? No, his audience is whom? It's the Philippian church, it's Christians, it's believers. They have been, some of these have been believers for a good while. And what he's saying to them is this, if you grant the premise that there is encouragement in Christ, uh, because he knows his recipients, he's writing this letter to a specific group of people, and we have it today to learn from as well. Uh, And and this, these people have been in Christ for a number, a number of years, and they know from experience that there is encouragement to be had in Christ. And so what is the encouragement? Well, first that we go back in chapter 1, but also we can see the Philippian church as well. The thing, I'll just tell you what the encouragement was. They understood a, a huge truth that's really spelled out in chapter 1. That all everybody can be saved, connected with God, made right with God, regardless of their background, their aptitude, their sin, or their family history. Nobody is outside the bounds of being made right with Christ. And that's encouraging. When we are saved, Paul talks about in multitudes of places, we are saved not because we're good, but because of God's grace. And grace, that word itself implies this, that in spite of, in spite of yourself, your sin, your background, your family history, all those things. You can have a relationship with God because it's God that does the saving, not you. And that, he said, is great encouragement. So he starts off by saying, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. Then he goes on and he says, if you have any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, And of one mind. The first thing he says after about the encouragement, he talks about: is there any comfort in love? Let me ask you guys a personal question. Now, this is not that personal, but it's it's so general and so broad, it's going to like, okay. Um, Do you have any encouragement from knowing that somebody loves you? I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) Yes. I mean, let me tell you. You know that you've heard this, this. I don't know, movies or something, say love makes the world go around, you know? I, I don't know if that's true or not, but I don't know if it makes a spin or not. I think that's more of a something else. Anyway, but the reality is, the reality is, is that we all are encouraged by knowing that somebody loves us. Somebody is, you know, I mean, one of the things that people do in their life, they look for connections with people, people that care for them, people that love them will care for them. And the thing is to know that God loves you, is that encouraging? It should be because the creator of the universe cares about you. And he's saying that's, that's incredibly encouraging. Um, and so what do we do because of that? Well, here it, tells, it says if you have anything in common, sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then, then he says, then make my joy complete. He says, complete my joy by being like-minded, having great relationships. Because nothing's more important than relationships he's already told us. Jesus has already told us. Having the same love, being one in spirit and one of one mind. And pa- Paul, actually over in Romans, another book he wrote, the letter he wrote, Romans thirteen eight, Paul kind of like gives the shorthand version of this. He says this, owe no one anything except to love each other. He's basically saying this, if you're encouraged by Christ's salvation, by what he did for you, if you've got any encouragement from that, if you've received any comfort from the fact that the Father loves you, if, if the Spirit's empowering presence dwells in you, go all the way in the Christian experience, and this is what he's urging Him to do when he says complete my joy. He says by living and then you do this by living in unity with each other, loving each other, and working together to build up Christ's body. Now, Paul basically, and this is where you can go back and look at Philippians chapter 1, Paul basically echoes the the gist of Philippians 1. In other words, he's saying this, and this is what's important this morning, folks. He's saying this in Philippians 1 and 2. If the gospel is true, the gospel is what? The good news that Jesus Christ loved you, saved you, and died for your sins. If the gospel is true, you believe it, and you follow it, your life should look like it's true. Do you hear that? If you really do believe the gospel, which not believe is not just head knowledge, belief is heart knowledge, that I entrust this, then your life should reflect or look like it's true. If you've been united with Jesus, this unity should be exemplified by how you live, and one of the primary ways that you live out your life is in relationships. So if you're in Christ... Nobody, Christians should have the greatest relationships of anybody if they truly are Christians. That's what he's saying. Paul mentions that in Philippians 1. But Paul also mentions in Philippians 1.17 and, and implies in one twenty seven that there's this wrench in the gears of Christian unity and it, what it is is individual self-interest and pride. Because he goes next in verse, in verse 3 in Philippians 2, he says this. He says, therefore, do this, do nothing... Out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing. He's going like, make my joy complete by being unified. But let me just warn you, there's a couple of things that can cause problems. Something called selfish ambition and something called vain conceit. What do those things mean? He said these should never be motivating factors in a Christian's life or the follower of Christ's life. First of all, the first forbidden motivation is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is saying nothing must be done from a place where I focus upon self. So woe to us if we're thinking, well, you know, I've got to make this amount of money, so I've got to make, this person makes this amount of money, so I want to make that amount of money. Or, or this person has a, a, a big house, and I like to have a bigger house. You know, it's, that's selfish ambition. There's nothing wrong with having ambition, but if our, our ambition is so that we can compare ourselves to others and live in such a way, it's like the whole thing we used to talk, talk about, and I don't think we still talk about, li- keeping up with the Joneses, whoever the Joneses are, In your neighborhood you know we we want to do that he says don't let that be a motivating factor in your relationships don't be uh, persons who have a selfish ambition some translations i thought was interesting some translations render selfish ambition as the word rivalry rival now think about that it is living as if christ has for some reason we think so you ever heard anybody say say it's just not fair what's happened to somebody, you know? They can do all kind of evil things, and they still seem to come out ahead. Ever dealt with that? It's just not fair. And it's just not kids that say that. It's adults that say that, too, sometimes. The reality is, in Christ, we know who the winner is. You ever read the, the end of the Bible? Who wins at the end of the Bible? It's not Satan. It's not Joe down the street who does everything evil and and, and still gets ahead. No, who it is, it's God. And if you're on God's team, you win. God settles the score. We don't have to sit down and keep the score. So selfish ambition is going like We're trying to keep score. We're trying to settle everything all the time. Secondly, he says, do nothing from conceit. He calls it vain conceit, but do nothing from conceit. So if selfish ambition is thinking, I've got to beat them, conceit is being a sore loser when you don't. Okay? That's the difference. Conceit is about appearances, about saving faith. You compare yourself to others and become bitter when you don't measure up, or at least the way you think you should measure up. Uh, and you look at perceived failures. And, 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 and conceit, This conceit. it's interesting. I learned a German word this week. I didn't know I, I, I could learn... Other languages. I know a little bit of French. Took took it in high school. I know some Greek. I took it in seminary, and I know a little bit of Hebrew. But I don't know any German. Okay, but I learned a German word, and I learned a, the German word is actually in the English dictionary now. I found that out today it's because I found out I talked to a German this morning. Okay, a person who grew up in Germany. His name's Freddie. Goes to church here to make sure that the definition was correct. Okay, some of you may know German, so I'm probably going to slaughter the word when I do it. So just forgive me because that's just the way it is. But um, it's an interesting word, and, uh, and it kind of deals along with this. Uh, let me ask you first a question. How many of you ever have felt happy when somebody got theirs? I, that was a great illustration. Somebody gave me going out the door. They said, have you ever driven down the road, ever driven down the road, and somebody just blows past you in a car, and then a little farther down the road, you see them pulled over by a state police officer or something, and they're going like, they deserve that. <laughs> and you celebrate. <laughs> you know what that's called? It's German. It's called Schaldenfruden. Schaldenfruden. It's a, it's a word that means, <laughs> it's basically a word that means taking pleasure when something bad happens to somebody else. So in the future you'll know what that means. It's actually an English dictionary, okay? I didn't know that. But Schadenfreude is an interesting word because, uh, and, and Freddie was talking this morning, he said, that's what it came up. It basically means, and this is interesting, he says in the German culture, it means it means that somebody gets, gets something, bad happens to them, but they, it's what they deserve. And so I asked the question, who made you judge and juror about what they deserve? Because that's what happens when we say that. You know, we think, oh, they deserve that. And, and we have this, this real problem it's, it's kind of like, <laughs> I'll use the analogy I used last service and I'll still get in trouble. Anyway, um, I love football, okay? But we, we have taken schadenfreude to a new level in America, you know? We go to a football game. It's great to cheer for your home team, right? Yeah. But we've taken, we don't just cheer for our home team anymore. What do we do now? We cheer against the other team. And somebody's going down the field and some kid go, pow. Knocks them off their feet off of that. And we don't cheer for the guy that does it. We go like, yeah, it's what he deserved. I was at Metamore the other night. It happened. And I'm sure it happened in Washington and East Peoria and even Canton. Okay. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, you weren't at the game. But uh, the reality is, is we come to this point in our life where the the reality is, is we have this this thing where we, we, we cheer and we get excited when somebody when something bad happens to somebody else we take pleasure in it. There's something messed up about that. It's like it's like when we watch America's funniest videos and some kid is just doing incredibly dumb things, you know? Like riding a bicycle off a wall or something, you know? And he goes up and he loses his bicycle and he straddles the wall and falls. Like, oh. And we go, Ha-ha-ha-ha. "He deserved that, he's so dumb." That's just sick. We should go on like, I feel sorry for the guy. He's so dumb. <laughs> right? But see, that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying in our relationship, we do nothing from conceit. Because when we conceit, we become judge and jury. We decide what's right and wrong. And what we do is then we take pleasure when something hap- bad happens to somebody else. We should never do that, Paul says. So, what does it mean? Well, look, there's two, tests, there are two truths today that come out of the message, out of Philippians uh, chapter 2. The first one is this. The first truth is this. Humility is the daily decision to think of others as more important than yourself. Humility is the daily decision, not just a one-time decision, the daily decision to think of others more important than yourself. Because he says, do the, nothing then from either selfish ambition or conceit. And then in verse 3b, three, three he says this. Rather, in humility... Value others above yourself. That's exactly what I just said. The first truth. Rather, instead of you know being all excited when happens somebody experiencing schadenfreude, <laughs> you going remember that word, okay? Look it up. S C H how it starts. Schadenfreude, being excited when something bad happens to somebody else, and we, yeah He said, instead of doing that, in humility, value others above yourselves. Now, <laughs> you think that's hard to do? Let's just be honest. This is church. You can't lie. Well, you can try to lie. But, uh, you know, God will get you. I'm, I'm, you can fool me. You can fool a lot of people. But God knows exactly what you're thinking in your heart and mind. So let's just be honest. It is hard to always value others above yourselves. It is. I mean, most of us don't get up every morning going like, Let's all think about everybody else in God. No, you think about yourself. You do. And so the reality is it's really hard. He says, rather in humility, value others uh, above yourselves. Or else, uh, if if it's not hard for you, you've probably never really done any honest, honest introspection and looked at your own heart. And to make sure you don't misunderstand him, Paul doubles down in verse 4. He says it again in a different way. Philippians 2, 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. It says exactly the same thing he said in the last verse, but just in a different way. He says it twice. Now these two behaviors, considering others more significant than yourself and not looking only to your own interests, he says this will not, will not produce um, uh, the kind of relationships um, I mean, will produce the relationships God wants you to have. And if you don't do them, your daily walk will be rooted in arrogance. Now, the next few verses, verses 5 through 8, I want us to stop a second and look at these, not real long, but just want to focus our attention because of all, this is the reason I, I taught use this verse today because probably, probably in many ways, verses 5 through 8 are the greatest and most moving and most important passages Paul ever wrote about Jesus. Anywhere. And he wrote a lot of stuff about Jesus. It states a favorite thought of his, the essence of it, which is a simple statement Paul made in Corinthians uh, two, uh, 2 Corinthians 8 9, when he says that Al- although Jesus was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. But it says it in detail in, in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. And so here in these verses is a simple idea, and it's stated with fullness without parallel anywhere else, probably in the New Testament that Paul is pleading to the Philippians to live their lives in harmony, to submit to one another, to shed their personal ambitions and their pride and their desire for prominence and prestige. And he does it by giving the example of Jesus Christ himself. He says in Philippians 2, verse 5, In your relationships, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, mindset as Christ Jesus. That's where he starts. Boy, what a standard. Now think about that a minute. He says, he's not, this is not a suggestion. This is what he says. If you want to have the kind of relationships that God wants you to have, one of the things, that if you submit to one another, how you do that, how you live lives of humility, is to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus did about his relationships. Now, let me, let me just share this. Today at the end of the service, before we sing our final song, after I finish preaching and pray, we're going to partake of communion. Okay, we have it around the, around the uh, room. And uh, I'll, I'll let you know more details about that later. But the reality is, when I thought about it, and the reason we're doing it today is this. I cannot think of a better example of submission and humility than Jesus Christ upon the cross. Can you? Can't do it. Can't do it. Because then it talks about what that means right here in the next few verses. It says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I mean, Jesus, if anybody had the right to say, I'm God because he was God, if anybody had the right to use the power that comes from being God, it was Jesus. But scripture says here, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing Zero, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient uh, to death, even death on a cross. Man, that's the example of ultimate human. It says, what what, what does it mean for us? It says, we should have the same mindset. If you want to have great relationships, the secret to greatness is to be humble like Christ was. And how humble was Christ? He thought of you and you and you and you and you and everyone here and everyone in the world before he thought of himself. Now that's a big task. And we can't do it on our own. But the good thing is, is that didn't it get in the last uh, Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, says, what is the outcome of that? If we do that, what's going to happen? Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know we usually think that the road to greatness is thinking all about ourselves. Jesus said no the road to greatness is thinking about others and God first. And the outcome of that is truly greatness. It's being exalted, being lifted up by God. It doesn't mean we'll become God but it means that God will take us to a place we never could be. So, truth number two. Truth number two. Humility is the daily decision to humble yourself under God's mighty hand. That's what it says in those verses, and then it also says it in First Peter. Peter declares this in 1 Peter 5, 5, and 6. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Now, Humility, understand this, humility is not putting yourself down, it's lifting God up. Humility is being honest about who you are, we talked about this last week as well, about your strengths and your weaknesses, and it's being honest about who God is, about His strength, His goodness, and what He can do in your life. I like what one writer said when he said it this way, he said, humility is not thinking less of myself it is thinking more of others. Humility is not putting myself down, it is lifting God up. Humility is not denying my strengths, it is being open, openly honest about my weaknesses because humility is seeing that without Christ, I can do nothing. But in Christ, I can do all things. So, two things you can do that this week in regards to what Scripture says. Just two things. You can do a lot more of this as just two things, okay, this week, that come, the outcome of this. As you go through your days, if you want to work your way toward humility as much as you can, number one, Admit that you are proud. Confession is the first part. <laughs> you have to admit that you're proud. All of us have pride in our life. All of us have issues where we, where we want to think about ourselves first. So, first, admit that you're proud. And number two, act humble. You're going to do what? Act humble. Don't wait until you feel humble, because if you wait for a humble feeling, it'll never get there. And you're going like, oh, pastor, isn't that hypocritical? No, it's being obedient, because God commands you to act with humility so it's the right decision no matter what you may be feeling. You don't even try to feel humble. Humility is not aware of itself. And if you're trying to feel humble, you're going to become so aware of yourself that you're not going to be humble anymore. If that's confusing, I'll read it again later, okay? Okay. But the reality is, is if, you, if you're trying to work up humility, it's just not going to happen. Because all you're doing is focused on you. And that's the opposite of humility. Humility is throwing your selfishness away in complete concern for someone else, so you act humble. Let me just say it this way. Imagine for a moment, this is how we're going to wrap it up, imagine for a moment the incredible freedom of humility. Being free from the need to be noticed. All of us want to be noticed, Right? From worrying about which seats you're sitting in or not sitting in? Folks, I don't know about this. I want to tell you, in most places, the front seats are the best ones. And nobody ever sits here. <laughs> I'm going to start charging. And so you'll pay big money for those seats. I don't know if you would or not. But anyway, you know, the reality is, so often we go to a place and we're going like, oh, and, you know, that was the problem with Jesus' disciples. They wanted to sit at the best seats. That's all they worried about. They were so self, self-absorbed. How if you were free from worrying about which seats you're sitting in or not sitting in? If you were being set free to trust God and to live out His ambition for your life instead of yours. Because if you live out His ambition, it will be what's best for you. That's what Scripture tells us. So, I just want to pray uh, for us this morning, and then I want us to give some instructions about communion this morning as we close. So let's pray.